Welcome to the Women in Jazz Media podcast series on the bookcase with music from Hannah Horton. Welcome to Women in Jazz Media's podcast series on the bookcase. And uh, I'm very excited to welcome a wonderful guest, um, a jazz historian, author, editor, um, and looking at um, uh, her biography, former senior jazz coordinator for the Jazz Arts Programme at the Manhattan School of Music. Um, her previous books are um, Jill Evans' uh, Out of the Cool and Duke Ellington, His Life in Jazz, which we're yet to have on our Women in Jazz Media bookcase, but we're going to sort that almost immediately um, because um, the book that is on our bookcase is the fantastic Rhythm Man, Chick Webb, and the beat that changed America. And I'm delighted to welcome Stephanie Stein Kreese uh, to our podcast. Welcome. Well, I'm really thrilled that you got in touch with me, Fiona. It's really uh, my honor and pleasure to speak with you. So, Thank you so um, much. And I have to say, right off the bat, what is also an honor and privilege to speak with you is uh, uh, the book came out a few months ago. But you're actually the first female interviewer that's spoken with me about the book, even though through the course of the book, of course, I've spoken with other women musicians and, uh, you know, um, other fellow female writers and historians and so forth. But this is really a great, you know, I feel like, all right. <laughs> so I love that. Reasons for that, too. <laughs> so, oh, so, anyway, I love that. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. honestly. Thank you for and I and I have to say this book came across my path as such as part of the Jazz Journalists Association, which uh, some of the listeners will know that um, I'm a member of, and we get sent all these books each year. Uh, and, and and obviously, I'm always seeking out female authors. Um, I read all the books that uh, come across, um, but female authors are a clear focus for mine. So I was absolutely delighted to to find out about you. And I hadn't heard of you, and I feel terrible. Um, but this is part of why um, women in jazz media we do this work because there's all these incredible women out there that some people haven't heard of. So apologies for having not heard of you before. Um, but I wonder if we could start off. Could you tell us? a little bit I mean we will talk about the book but could you tell us a little bit about about you uh, your life as a writer well I've you know I've had a lifelong interest in jazz I live in New York City I grew up in New York City uh, my father was a big jazz fan so with my older brother my mother was more like an omnivorous music lover and so I actually grew up listening to all kinds of things but also you know, getting to hear a lot of jazz when I was a teenager. So I'll, I can, it's like I can date myself if you want, <laughs> but I was really lucky. I was really lucky to hear a lot of music, you know, from, uh, you know, way back when mm. uh, more people were just performing. There were, you know, uh, now there's still more people performing, but I haven't caught up with a lot of the younger musicians, although I did while I was at Manhattan School of Music. Mm. And so I've had a lifelong interest. I also did go to Berkeley College of Music in Boston ah, okay. and uh, way back, but um, I was piano and also orchestration. So some of that also led me into why Gil Evans or why the swing era and a focus on arranging. I just have always had kind of more of a total fascination with orchestrated music and the balance between improvisation and jazz and the written components of jazz and how that's changed over many, many years. So that's just always been kind of an ongoing kind of area of thought for me. But like some other people, it's like, I knew I wasn't really that great of a pianist. <laughs> so, and at a certain point, um, I, I think um, there really weren't the kind of, now there's so many more opportunities in academia and jazz studies and media studies and jazz and cultural studies that really didn't quite exist. And, you know, I, w I had to work, you know, so I ended up in all things, um, uh, in a, a kind of corner of the record industry, transferring a lot of analog stuff 
to digital. And I was an editor at a couple of, worked for a couple of different companies over the years, making, I don't know if you know, those lavish, beautiful box sets of Duke Ellington's entire output on RCA. Oh, yes. You know, Art Tatum or John Coltrane, you know. Mm. So I got to participate in a lot of, of these archival projects, which which as an editor and sometimes as a writer and sometimes even on for a couple of smaller uh, labels as a, a associate producer. So I've kind of had dabbled in different things and also mm -hmm. jazz education is really big for me. So it was a great pleasure to work at Manhattan School of Music and now see especially some of these women who who are now doing so well. So that's been really nice because I feel like yeah <laughs> it's like India India this bassist India Owens who is now with John Baptiste she's amazing yeah, she is totally amazing and I knew she was amazing the minute I first heard her and also a couple of these uh, women band leader composers Miho Hazama I'm not sure if you know she's also worked with a um, German jazz orchestra, uh, radio jazz orchestra, the WNDR, um, and another young woman who's really come up, um, Ji Hei Lee, who was a student, you know, before I um, left the school. So mm. it's just been kind of sweet to say, yes, this is their time. Um, Lakeisha Benjamin just is incredible, the alto saxophone. So, and, you know, new vocalists mm. who are coming up. So, I feel like it's it's an important time. It's it's always jazz is always hard <laughs> to break through, but but for people who have the passion and interest and desire to like keep this music alive, um, it's really important. And also to me, it's also important. I think one of the things own background because I've always loved all kinds of music. So I loved jazz and really did delve into jazz history almost, um, I, I don't want to say by accident, but more like a, a kind of stubborn curiosity, like how did so-and-so start doing this music, you know, at a certain point or in New York or coming out of locales in New mm. York, like these historic places that I discussed in the book, like the Savoy Ballroom or the Apollo or the, you know, the, all the Greenwich Village clubs later on. So, you know, to me also jazz in America has always been tied in with certain communities and the music of certain communities and how they spread to other places. So I know that's kind of spread from your question. <laughs> no, <laughs> spread away. <laughs> I hope that's helpful. <laughs> But this is one thing that I think always fascinates me when uh, people write books about um, what I consider kind of legacy artists um, mm -hmm. and someone like Chick Webb, which obviously this, this fantastic book is about. And there's a bit, not really been much written about Chick Webb at all, um, but it's that history. And I think you being a jazz historian must have come in incredibly handy. So how I mean what's your process when, when you're talking about someone who had sadly a relatively short career that was so long ago um and and a lot of it I imagine was not documented and and I know I've read the book so I, I know some of the answers to these questions but for people listening who mm -hmm. haven't read the book how did you approach looking into the history uh, of Chick? Well I honestly um had to do a lot of free research, you know, before I totally committed, which was sort of, you know, kind of, I had an opportunity to do this in Oxford, which was really wonderful. But even before, you know, I had to go through the formal process of writing a proposal and doing all that. And I knew, you know, uh, that compared to some other great historic figures, like including Mary Lou Williams, who has, her huge collection is at the Institute of Jazz Studies and also a lot of the later work is at Duke University or Duke Ellington. You know, it's like the Smithsonian is full of Duke Ellington. There's other places that have Duke Ellington collections. Ella Fitzgerald, you know, so mm. I, I have to say with Chick, there was very little. In fact, there was almost, I really almost had to build build a repository of 
of documents, there were some things that were sort of floating around out there. Um, but I really had to track down, um, you know, birth records, you know, whatever I could about his family because there was no paper trail. And now it's kind of interesting because it often happens when a book comes out, somebody in Baltimore will finally go, oh, well, my so in, my uncle's scrapbook was full of these times when Dick was, you know, here or there. Mm. I mean, it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. Um, but uh, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but I so my approach was almost like I dug through. I I'm the kind of researcher I a part of my process is I love the digging. I love mm. the work. And fortunately, also, I had started a I did some pre research at the Institute of Jazz Studies also a, a couple of other private collections, both in and and research uh, institutions in, in Baltimore and also in New York to just see if was there really enough there there. And um, I knew it would be tougher, though, than where it's like, oh, you go to the library and there's all this stuff. So um, I, I figured out, though, that part of the approach would also be the book is totally centered around Chick, who did live such a short life. He died mm -hmm. when he was only 34 at the height of his career. So to me, part of the draw was like, it's such an incredible dramatic story. And and the fact that he was the first band leader that hired Ella Fitzgerald, who went on to have such a long life and extraordinary career. So all these layers and that the other thing that I discovered, which I kind of knew, but I really had fun digging into was the fact that Chick moved to Harlem when in 1925, it, during the height of the Harlem Renaissance, when black dance, black theater, the black literary arts, what we think of as, you know, the flowering of the Harlem Renaissance, even though jazz is often left out of that narrative, like I included in the narrative, you know, that um, all this was going on. And that in the course of things, he really did as a, first as a drummer and then as a novice band leader was you know, kind of running around with Duke Ellington and people from Fletcher Henderson's band and anybody who was anybody on the scene, because in some ways it was a small, com very competitive world. So, um, but in other ways, it was an opportunity, you know, so I think in, in, in a certain way, it's like for young musicians who were trying to make it, who were in this fertile almost hothouse environment, uh, it was the perfect place to be. And the thing that I also discovered was the rich heritage of the Black community in Baltimore's musical community, you know, which some people, again, we know the big names. Billie Holiday came from Baltimore. Mm. Cab Calloway came from Baltimore. But the person who really fascinated me, the more I learned about, was Blanche Calloway, who was Cab's older sister, who actually was a star in Chicago before Cab even made it out of town. You know, and then she was a sensation as a band leader um, in the same period of Chick. And U.B. Blake, of course, you know, the ragtime piano king, um, he came out of Baltimore and, and you know, kind of uh, as a songwriter, uh, the, you know, kind of co-founder and creator of Shuffle Along, which just made this huge dent in Black theater and Black expressive arts in the theater on shows. Um, you know, this a lot of people kind of came in his, it's like, wow, Yubi's there. He, he was a trailblazer in many ways. So in a certain uh, sense, I began to think of the book as also this or this period is like you know this great migration the great migration of a lot of black americans moving to northern cities but also the great entertainers migration or people who were like if you could do it you were going to do it and and it was just a larger playing field you know there were more 
even marginal opportunities or whatever opportunity, you know, there were just more places. Plus, in the 20s, New York really was just kind of the nexus of what we would think of as media. You know, radio was beginning to flourish. The music publishing industry was there, the, you know, the recording industry. So it was, you know, I kind of feel like um, it, if you could wiggle your way in, you you did, you know. So I think it was, um, I had a lot of fun just kind of really digging into that. So in some ways it became about chick, you know, chick in the middle of all this, mm. but, but also about the people he surrounded himself with and the people who became his first bandmates, which included a couple of prominent, or people who became more prominent later, like the alto saxophonist, Johnny Hodges was in his early band. Um, uh, Cootie Williams, great trumpet player who went on with Duke, you know, and, and Chick, I, I I just learned so much about how, you know, he never held anybody back. You know, it's like Duke was after Johnny Hodges. This was back in the late 20s, we're talking. And he was like, you know, go, you know, so you just go, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have hold, held someone back from when, when there was a better opportunity, which at the time, a chick wasn't working steadily. So these were definitely better opportunities. So. And and I have to say a few, picking up on a few things that, uh, that you've mentioned there, because one of the things that you do so beautifully in this book is the energy of that time and you and you talked about that a second ago about you know that time in history and the the energy the the competition mm-hmm. but the healthy competition and that mm-hmm. energy uh, and you've beautiful I mean that comes out I mean I was genuinely reading this book and I was like I want to go and dance I want to I want to <laughs> be there I want to be in that environment and, and that's quite that's quite hard to do that but you, you honestly beautifully um you portray that energy and that's really infectious uh, and I guess when you and, and you said this when you were researching and, and how you love digging you must have felt energized just just kind of exploring oh, yeah. those times yeah, I, I had a really good time. And I was, I mean, one of the things, you know, so it's like, how did I gather the material? It's almost like a few main things. Um, uh, at the Institute of Jazz Studies houses what was, uh, and now there's more of them spread out, the, the Smithsonian Oral Jazz History Project. So a whole bunch of those interviews ended up at the Institute of Jazz Studies. The other, and a lot of them weren't digitized yet. So when I started doing this, um, I actually got a, a, a. I was very benefited from a little fellowship from the Institute and also from the Schomburg Center for Black Culture, which is part of the New York Public Library System. So I'm a great, I mean, this is, I love doing that process. So I think I spent a good part of a summer just listening to oral, these oral histories, most of which were made like in the seventies of people who were mm. still alive and had worked with Chick. And, and uh, some of them also, um, wherever I could elaborate on the women, because again, it was, you know, the sweethearts of rhythm hadn't come along yet, of course, and Blanche, of course, wherever I could make what I could of people like Blanche Calloway, um, Valida Snow, who Chick intersected with, you know, the early pianist, Mary Lou Williams, who lovingly talked about, you know, Savoy, hearing Savoy, you know, hearing Chick at the Savoy and was all these band battles and the competition that he just loved the fight of these band battles. And she said things like, if you knew you were playing there, better watch out. That Chick Webb, he ran bands right out in there. You know, and it's like that was the, the playful, incredible part of musical combat. You know, he just jumped into it. He was he was that kind of uh, love the fight, you know, love the fight in a way, in, uh, the good fight. And but the other thing I did, I really did get a great visceral, you know, now it's sort of it's both good and bad. It's both good. There's so much di- digitization 
mm-hmm. of resources. And during COVID, one of the things all the libraries here or the research libraries kind of stepped up to the plate and things that hadn't been digitized were all of a sudden, oh, you could find this online or they started posting, the IJS has now many of these interviews online. So these are treasure houses Mm -hmm. of memory and uh, connection. And what you get about them more than anything is the sense of community of different places at different times. So that really came through to me, you know, listening to so many of Chick's colleagues. And the other beautiful thing that, again, I'll, I won't, I could talk about. Oh, talk to do. a writer. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you know, no, like you can talk. No about, apologies. But one of the, thi- one of the, yeah. But I kind of think Chick was like, you know, a center of several crossroads in the music. So, you know, as he hired Ella before, female singers were really that standard in a big band you know uh there were a few that came before like Mildred Bailey and a couple of people but Billie Holiday really hadn't worked with big bands yet she was still um but you know so there was that piece then there was also he hired um Mario Bauza who's his uh Cuban trumpet player who'd been a uh child prodigy actually on clarinet but grew to love jazz you know listened played in nightclubs in Havana and people his his uh, fellow musicians convinced him to play sax uh, to play trumpet instead of saxophone so he could project more and you know so again he was part of this wave of um of people who had already existed of latin musicians caribbean musicians moving to new york and he was playing with a band, you know, it was like a, a a dance band of Latin musicians. Actually, they were from uh, what's now the Dominican Republic, but there was a coterie of them and they were very versatile. So that was the thing. It's like you have to we have to bring back the dance connection because mm-hmm. that was what the Savoy was about. So if if a band didn't please the dancers, that's forget it. You know, they were not invited back. So. Mario was part of this other group who played that the Savoy had like two bandstands. So there'd just be continuous music. So it's almost like, I guess, part of my um, process is also like, I have a great imagination, <laughs> which I hope is on target, you know, of like, you know, one band would play for, you know, 45 minutes. And the next band would just start. So there's no stopping. The dancers just keep going. Nobody wants to stop, you know, that kind of thing. So Mario found out that Chick um, had an opening. And his friends, uh, for a trumpet player, this is like 1933. And one of his friends said, oh, you should audition. You should audition. He's like, oh, I don't know. But he did. And there, I speak about this at length in the book because I love the story so much, you know, that Mario really didn't think he could do it. But Chick was like, Mario, you just listen to me. You're the man I want. You just, you know, take all my advice. And and he did. And he became like he was the lead uh, trumpet player and then also helped just in the, you know, uh, what did they call it? Help run the business of the band, mm-hmm. you know, running rehearsals, things like that. And then he also at the Savoy met the young Dizzy Gillespie later on through somebody else's band. And later on, they went on to forge their own collaboration in Afro-Cuban jazz. So, you know, there's that piece and and the piece with, um, what's his name? Louis Jordan. Played, mm. uh, who he was the guy that formed the Timpani Five, which is you know this is all roots music, rhythm and blues, the beginning of rock and roll, and so he was in you know uh, Chick's band at a formative time, and there were some other people you know that's like many people have never heard of some of these side musicians who were just amazing you know so I fell in love with this tenor player whose work I really didn't know, but he was just so ahead of his time, almost going in the direction of, you know, fluidity that Lester Young later does, Elmer Williams. Mm. So it's like when you listen to it, it's like, that 
I was in this setting, you know. So I I really enjoy that. My you know it's like microcosm, macrocosm, you know, really digging in. But I also loved, um, especially um, at the Schomburg Center for Black Culture, just finding things. Uh, it was almost the way I was building the narrative, just finding. I knew Chick didn't have a collection, but there's all these other people who left all their paperwork to the Schomburg or to the Institute of Jazz Studies. So um, I found in this woman's theater collection, this uh, woman named Helen Armstead Johnson, who uh, you know just followed uh, theater, and she she had this huge collection with all these different files. You know, so again, you have to kind of know how to use the finding aids and do this, and do that. Um, and she had letters, you know, from one of the earliest band leaders who played at the Subway, and that was just oh my God, these are here. Or, you know, the papers of Don Redmond, who'd been the famous arranger helping form arranging styles, and Fletcher Henderson. So his whole collection was there. So things I couldn't find for Chick, it's like, oh, he kept his day books. How much did he pay people? It you sounds know? so wonderful. And it kind of, the and, and, and I love this conversation because the energy that, that I'm, I'm hearing and seeing from you, this is absolutely in the book. And you do for, for kind of people listening, when you read this book, it really does transport you back to that time, that energy and that passion. And I know this seems like an obvious question. And obviously you talked about your love of kind of um, orchestration and big bands. Um, and you're obviously so very passionate about Chick, but what actually brought you to decide to write a book about Chick when you consider so many of the the legends and also so many of the legends that have not been written about? So an obvious question, but but what brought you to the decision that Chick Webb was the, the person you wanted to write about? Well, um, I had uh, the back, one of the backstories is, um, my husband is a great swing dancer. Uh. So years ago, he was very involved with uh, the New York swing dance community back in the 1980s when they, a bunch of people started the New York Swing Dance Foundation. And dancers like Frankie Manning, I don't know if you know these names, some of these great legendary Lindy Hoppers still alive. And uh, so this group started putting on dances and uh, Frankie and Norma Miller, who lived to mm. be almost a hundred years old, there are books about her. She wrote her own memoir. Um, and they were, you know, they were also the stars of the Savoy in a certain mm. way of the Savoy ballroom. And totally in the same way that some of the musicians were um, just, you know, breaking such fresh ground in those years in terms of solo styles and improvisation. But it was also swing was the thing. And the thing at the Savoy Ballroom, as I said before, was to keep those dancers dancing. So um, Frankie and Norma actually mentored a lot of younger dancers in various places over the years where they'd have live big bands, you know, so some of the jazz bands in New York, Lawrence Schoenberg was leading a wonderful swing dance band. And so I, I, at that point, I was still doing more, you know, wrote years ago for Downbeat and Jazz and some of those other magazines. So I, I was um, asked to cover uh, dance for the Swing Dance Society in collaboration with the Duke Ellington Society, putting on a special thing. So it's like, oh, it was fabulous, you know, because I too, I hadn't really done that. And I really, my father had danced with the Savoy and was a great dancer, but it's like I hadn't, that I grew up bebop, you know, or bebop mm. in later and actually more later, but I, you know, was sitting down, sitting in the audience, jazz. <laughs> so it was revelatory. And especially to see people like Frankie Manning dance and, you know, uh, and Norma, just incredible. And they, 
they mentored groups. They there was like an amateur level performance group that did stuff around town. And Frankie was just just an incredible person and a joy to watch. And he was into nineties, I think. Um, and became, you know, it's sort of he had a new career because they were famous. They started to be famous. They were professionalized as kind of teenagers, and that's a story in itself. Some of which I go into the book. Um, there are, you know, better resources on on that, including their own memoirs. Um, but it was very magical, and so that was my husband was um, not. I'm not going to put it all on him, but he once he knew. Well, there was kind of this opportunity for me. So many books had been written about, say some of the major figures, including the women who I would have loved to write, <laughs> but it had already happened. You know, Mary Lou Williams, T Dr. Tammy Kernoodle, and Linda oh, Dahl, I love a friend of mine, and other, other women. Yeah, Tammy is awesome. And I heard She's the podcast, it was just like, oh my God. <laughs> She's, She's my hero. Something. <laughs> um, and yeah, she's something. And um you know, but I, I kind of felt like there's always more women that need to be discussed and need to be written about. But sometimes it's hard to envision, um, again, get a material enough for a whole book. You know, sometimes mm. I think if I have another project coming I, right now, I don't. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> like, no, no deadlines. I'm so happy to not have deadlines. Uh, last year, it was just torture. But you know, to, to have maybe do a collaboration of more of the women, more of the women that no one's ever heard of you know, mm -hmm. or has heard very little about, you know, because mm -hmm. it's hard. It really is hard uh, to piece together the material for for some of some people. Not that, of course, they all deserve books, but sometimes it's it's hard. It's hard to do that. So. So sometimes I can sort of envision, you know, a book about somebody, you know, or a chapter about somebody, a chapter, you know, I would, I would love to collaborate. So in your circle, if you, yes. <laughs> I'm open. <laughs> um, but one of the other people that danced through this book who is such an incredible character, person, real person, but um, is Helen Oakley Dance. Mm. So check, I mean, this is the incredible part to me, you know, that, you know, can, when we consider, I mean, New York in its own way was still segregated and mm. it's, there's always issues. But the Savoy um, was actually founded more of a venue for the people of Harlem. But as it became more famous and as swing music became kind of the rock and roll of its time, more and more white people came, you know, college kids, you know, all the Benny Goodman crown, other people, they they came to hear Chick. Chick really was the king of the Savoy and uh, a completely mesmerizing performer with his band. And w as Ella got more, um, you know, on her feet professionally. And uh, so it, it became, you know, celebrities went there, you know, like Marlena Dietrich went there. People mm -hmm. got photographed in their first, and, and Frankie would say in a certain way, they love coming there because um, no one hounded them. They just kind of, you know, it's not, it, it, they got to just go and absorb and be part of this. So it, it's kind of fascinating that way too. The fact it certainly deserves all the credit it, it can have. And it's a, it's a wild story. Now I forget my train of thought. Um, but oh, I was just but asking Helen about Oakley. how how chick how how you kind of actually decided right. to oh to yeah write but about because, chick. yeah because um because he was under written about you know mm. I kind of felt like well how come he, he here here is such a foundational person to mm. do a lot of what we think of not just as jazz but almost like as popular music in America meaning mm. the Mario Bowser's go up with that from. Afro-Cuban, Afro-Latin, you know, Louis Jordan goes into, you know, R&B and rock and roll. And you hear the seeds of, there's some of the, the band's recordings, Chick's band's recording that actually there's a little shuffle beat, you know, 
um, a, a little bit of uh, Ella's thing. There's a great song called Rocket For Me. You can almost hear like the beginnings of other kind of music, but it was mostly because of the drama of his story and mm. his short life. You know, and just this thinking, um, I had seen Jeff Kaufman, uh, you know, there's just a beautiful documentary that came out in 2012 called The Savoy King. Mm. Um, so I had seen that, but it wasn't like at the moment that I saw it, it was like, oh, I have to write a book. It's more like things happened over time. Um, uh, but um, and it was suggested to me by, um, you know, a connection through, through the publisher, through Oxley. And it dug in and I, I got hooked. You know, once mm. I really found after a few months of digging around the story we're telling, in, in a sense, it's like if, I mean, maybe it's too far reaching, maybe it's not. If Beyonce died, you know, like someone who just died in the prime of their career that they had worked so hard for, so tirelessly. And, and that was the other thing that got me about Chick. It's like, he, you know, he, there's also he, I, I, he had a chronic disease, so that was also why he died young. He was, he was, he had um, tuberculosis of the spine as a young child, so he really was only four feet tall, and it also gave him, um, you know, a calcification of the spine, so it appears like he has a hunchback. So also, this guy. You know, to come up out of Baltimore, little drummer, you know, to just, um, I don't think he had it in his mind to become a band leader, but once he was in the environment, and then I detailed the story, it really was Duke Ellington, who was already uh, had a name for himself, not playing in Harlem so much, but playing in these midtown speakeasies, you know, so we're still talking the age of prohibition, you know, and so, you know, they're pleasing audiences with everything. You know, what, what I kept hearing in, in a good way, it could be a little scary. It's like, if they like what you were doing, they just throw money at you, you know? So, so Chick really came up in that time. And then um, uh, Duke Ellington was already ha crafting a sound with his smaller band that other club owners would come along and say, hey, I'm opening a new place around the corner. You have another band. I, we want you. So, you know, he kind of gave other people jobs. So I think once Chick got the bug, he really liked this feeling of status immediately, even when the band wasn't working. So I could I can really relate to that <laughs> in a way. So watching him, you know, it's not like things did not happen overnight, but they didn't happen to anybody overnight. You know, that's mm. really true. So, but just the fact that he just didn't give up, you know, he's like, he's just not going to give up. And, and uh, one of the things, quotes that I remember very strongly is like, once he was really finally ensconced in the Savoy Ballroom, which took a few years, the Savoy opened in 27. And he'd played there on and off in the late 20s, but it really wasn't until like 1931 or 32 that his band really became the house band. And during that time, the bands kept getting bigger. So it's like he went from like 10, you know, eight pieces to 10 pieces to 12 pieces whenever he could afford more. And he was crazy about arranging because that was the key to A, having a unique sound, but playing unique music and satisfying all these dancers. So, you know, I got hooked. You know, it's like this combination of like, he's four feet tall, you know, he's kind of disabled. He's won't give up. <laughs> he will not, um, uh, he takes chances on all these people. So he took a chance on Ella. No one knew who Ella was. She won a couple of talent contests, but she could have just disappeared, you know? Other people kept saying, "Oh, you should hear it," but it it could it could also have not happened, you know. He took a chance on Mario. He took a chance on a bunch of musicians, you know. That it just worked out for everyone's favor. And a couple of the most remarkable ones were he also took chances on 
working with a couple of white colleagues. So one of them was this young arranger, Van Alexander, who he was like, they didn't have enough arrangements for Ella. Mm-hmm. So again, this took a little time, but the guy his, at the time, his name was in. And he too, he just kind of hustled his way into the job. He was young. He was sort of an aspiring arranger. And it's like, who knew what that meant? You know, he took a couple of lessons and copied other people, but he came to the Savoy every night and just wrote down what the band was doing. So, uh, and then he lived to be almost a hundred years old too. And he was like, he never forgot his career. He went on to have write and TV. So, you know, I just kind of love that aspect of it. You know, just all these different relationships and and but also that no one had written a book about him. So it's sort of like uh it gave me both the opportunity to make a bunch of mistakes. <laughs> you know, or you know, it's like, whoops, I kinda that ah, well, you know, we'll get it next time. Um, but also, you know, kinda lay the groundwork for 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 others, you know. But um but interestingly, when I wrote about Gil Evans, the great arranger Mm. Um, it was the same kind of thing. It was like, how come everybody writes about Miles Davis? And, you you know, there's a lot of articles. Again, with Chick, Gary Giddens had written several wonderful articles about about Chick and other people had. He, he's in all these reference works, but it's like nobody had really written a book. But And once once I decided there really was enough material, especially thinking about digging into the time, digging into these communities in Baltimore and New York, that I could do it, uh, mm. you know, um, that I went ahead. But it was mostly because I just have this unfortunate <laughs> stubborn streak about, well, nobody did it. How come they did? Well, I guess I'll do it. You know, so that's uh, part of that. <laughs> it's curiosity. <laughs> one of the wonderful things, in, and, and you talked about this, and obviously, yeah, we've mentioned Ella, uh, and, and when I came across kind of when Ella appears in the book, it, um, it it's beautifully written because it would have, I imagine, I'm, I, I'm not a, a an author, um, uh, so I'm always fascinated by kind of the process in the author's mind, but I imagine it would have been very easy for Ella to have almost taken over the story. Uh, I mean, Ella is such a legend. Everybody right. knows Ella. And it would be, would have been very easy for her to have kind of absolutely taken over the story. But the way you've connected um, Chick and Ella is beautifully done because it, it, it you know, it explores oh, and explains how fantastic Ella is and her how she started. But what comes across um is chick's um consideration his care uh and and his love for supporting other artists and and as you said his illness for an example you know he didn't talk about that much although his physical appearance it was apparent because he was small and so on but he didn't really talk about that much um he was clearly very resilient and that comes across beautifully. And I think the end section, one of the last things he said, and, and forgive me, I should have written the quote down, but one of the last things he said was about, you know, to to one of his musicians, take care of Ella. So, you know, the way you kind yeah. of uh, wrote yeah. about that partnership was, was beautiful. Uh, but tell me, because I know we could talk for ages, uh, so I'm aware that... <laughs> I think we've been a little while now, but I think two questions I'd love to ask you. Um, One is, and in fact, you mentioned the fantastic Tammy uh, earlier on, uh, and I've spoken to her often about the responsibility that authors have when you're writing about someone else, someone that's no longer with us, that (laughs) you are their voice. Um, how um, How did you approach that responsibility because obviously you clearly did so much research and and loved it but you know how did you approach the fact that you know you are being chick's voice and he is he is no longer here to have a voice uh, and that you are being his voice could you share some thoughts on on, on how you approach that I'll, I'll i will try because it will um but i one thing about ella the other thing in the process of course of doing this book which most of which was written during COVID, which was, that's another story, another <laughs> phone call. Um, but it, it helped a lot to just have to stay home. But I did um, uh, end up 
um, talking with quite a bit. There's a new biography of Ella coming out soon in December. Yes. Judith Tick, who is an incredible musicologist herself and knows Tammy um, and all kinds of other people. And so over the course of this, especially during COVID, we started having, you know, conversations, you know, probably every couple of weeks. It was fantastic. And we would kind of bounce things off each other. So in a certain way, I was also very respectful that Judith was going to be writing about Ella. And so I was just doing it from my standpoint and from so to speak, you know, from that part of the story and that she went on to have such a long, you know, so, so I felt like Judith is doing that. It lets me off, you know, it's sort of, that is what she will be covering way more beautifully and in much more detail, but I needed to put in as much as I could to just explain what happened. Mm. And it was fascinating to me. And I also, at the time, also ended, you know, so getting back to how did I do this, I tried, I couldn't, uh, I know I, I, when I listened to Dr. Canoodle talking to you, think about how she did this balancing act of like putting herself in the, you know, almost, or putting some of her, her feelings and mm. her own relationship to the music and being a musician and be into the book. But I think my stance was always more of a storyteller because I couldn't begin (laughs) to put myself in as much as I wanted to put myself Mm. in Chick's shoes. There's, you know, it's more like I just had to try to envision him and how he lived and where he lived. And something I did numerous times was go uptown um to um and you could still see which isn't true in east baltimore where he grew up you know you can still walk around harlem and go to several of the addresses where he lived and go to the sites of the savoy is gone you know there's this uh you know a big apartment complex on the site but there you know, many places are gone, but there's still many places that are still there. You know, so sometimes I would just sort of take a little trip through the neighborhood. And I also did a lot of research at the Schomburg during this time. So that's in the, in 135th Street. And just think about what it felt like. And I actually had, I know this is going to sound nuts, but a couple of dreams, you know, <laughs> where it's like, <laughs> Oh man, writer, this is, I'm really losing it, you know. But I had a couple <laughs> of dreams where Chick was like, "Oh, there you are. Here, come. I want to introduce you to some people." And we went, you know, we just kind of went to a couple of bars, and you know, it's <laughs> like, "Let me introduce you to so and so, my good friend." The fact that it's like one of the biggest hurdles of this, though, is that try as many times as Chick was on the radio. I was not able to literally hear Duke Ellington. All these people gave numerous interviews. You can hear their voices. You can see what they look like. So there's teensy bits of footage. Um, and and uh, as many you can, I could hear like many uh, of the radio broadcasts have become, you know, um, recordings and so forth. And some of them are incredibly powerful, especially the ones at the very end of his life. They're just like, why you know mm. um these recordings a month or so before he died from uh, the Southland Cafe in Boston and he just tears the place mm. up, you know, he just sounds mm. so you know, so it's more just feeling his I was also, you know, just trying to think about his power as a musician, how he so many different facets. He was a master drummer. So that's one thing in these last few minutes. He was an absolute master drummer who laid the groundwork, I would say, for so many of what we think of as modern jazz drumming. You know, other people would argue with me about, well, there was so, of course there were. There was Baby Dogs, there was this one. But he, in that point in time, you know, other people were like, how did he do the cymbals? And how was he so precise? And he tuned his drums, you know. So every master drummer that came after him really took 
a lot of his skills, you know. So I kind of think that is something I also wanted to get out there. It's like he put the drums front and center. That and that is quotes from other drummers. Like what he did was like put the drummer as an artist in the ensemble. Um, so all of those things, I just wanted to bring forward his legacy more than mm. anything else. You know, it wasn't so much. And I think in his, no, I can't. I'm a, I'm, I'm a white woman. I'm a white old woman. You know? <laughs> so, no, but I just hope I, I did him justice because that's what I wanted to do. And also the community from which he came. And, you know, I, I just still walked away going how much he did in this short amount of time on his time on earth. It's just, you know, it really is kind of humbling to think about. And, and it is phenomenal. And, and you said that earlier about, you know, and we talk about the legacy, but he's he's quite often not mentioned as one of those groundbreaking drummers. Um, and, and your book absolutely platforms and highlights the fact that he was there way before many others. And he isn't uh, shouted about enough. Um, I, I just have kind of two final questions for you, uh, if I may. Um, and one thing is really, and I know you've spoken about it, but you, and I don't know how long it took you from um, kind of uh, deciding to write this book to, to publishing it, but you've completely immersed yourself, um, your kind of life and soul into Chick Webb and his life. What have you learned from that process? So coming out the other end, you've now published this fantastic book. How do you think, has it, has it shaped you? Has it changed you? How has Chick inspired you coming out the other end of this book? Well, again, it's um, Chick, but also Ella. Mm. You know, um, just feeling like a lot of the legacy is like, don't give up, don't give up, stay, stay true to yourself. You know, mm. um, find your own voice, but also give, give to other people. You know, stay. You know, give back, give to the community. You know, know that you're pushing forward a community. You know. So um, I chick came up in a time it was the Great Depression, you know. So sometimes I feel like during COVID it was like people talked the economy, you know, everything was going under, and I and I felt like he was doing all this through the depression, keeping this whole band together when when other people, you know, were really just barely making it. So that to me was also a miracle. And that the Savoy wasn't just a place to go down. It really was like a community center. You know, there were a lot of benefits of all kinds for, you know, um, different causes, leftist causes, you know, but also just hunger, unemployment, musicians, unemployment, you know, Chick was just right there, you know, and sometimes uh, the other thing that, that I came away with was how, how hard they worked. Mm. So, you know, he really didn't want to, give up unless until we couldn't you know so and Ella too it's just like she lived on the road you know so just that feeling of like this is where your life is you know this is your life and this is where it is I and I also just felt like that that, that feeling of Chick brought a lot of joy to a lot of people who stood outside the Savoy just waiting to get in. You know, some kind of music is a galvanizing force. Mm. You know, music is a life force. So I, that's also one of the things I came away with. But mostly just awe, like, how did this guy do it? You know, it's just such a beautiful, uh, incredible story. And I know that it gave him... The one of the gifts he was looking for was to just keep everybody else going. So mm. I think that to me is always a life lesson. It's like you need to keep everybody else going. Mm. Mm. And and mm. I know yeah, anybody, and as I say, obviously I've read the book, um, but for anybody listening, it's such a beautiful story. Uh, and, and apart from the fact that it's beautifully written, but, you know, Chick's story uh, and the things you take from that, as I said, the energy of the kind of the dancing, the resilience of Chick, 
but also that community and, and all of these artists that you, you kind of probably know, but didn't realize kind of how they started and, and Chick Webb's role in that and also platforming people, not just women, but women like Blanche Calloway. Um, it's such a beautiful uh, story and you do get energized and, and feel kind of resilient. So I honestly, I highly recommend anybody to read this fantastic book and, and, and I'm going to have to get your other books um, and I shall read those. I have to have, a, have you back on again and talk about those. But but one final question, if I may. Obviously, you are an experienced author. Um, and I always like, because I think we need more women, more women platforms. So what? Yeah, if there are any kind of um, women out there listening to this who are, you know, thinking about getting into writing, um, what kind of guidance or words of wisdom as a female author would you give other women who are considering starting to write? I think um, one thing is biography is really challenging. You know, it's like you're in for the long, mm. it's, it's, it's like a relationship, you know, if you're committed, you then you can't let it go. You just have to keep digging and keep working and be patient and take, let it take you because there's things, even as I was doing it, I would change my like, Oh, perspective on something or other it's like oh I've got to shape this more over here I've got to put this more over there and that kind of thing and I think the main thing is to um I think a lot of writers are really self-critical so sometimes I think it's it's more important to just be messy and just like get a you know get a draft out you can all that the, the messiness is what will give you the book so pays your own fit of like knowing that it will be hard and sometimes you'll kick yourself for saying yes and like that. But I think for female writers starting out, especially in writing about music is incredibly difficult. So I don't think I would have been able to write about the musical parts without my musical training, but that doesn't mean other people, you know, it does, it's still like a wide open field. The way we approach writing about music, music to me is such a cultural part of our history that there's a lot of ways to do it. But but if you're digging, you know, kind of careful or, you know, know how to know how to shape that or get other people to write that part or or whatever, because it, it's 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 tricky. Um, but the other thing I, you know, I really started out kind of because I was writing articles and and amassing material. And even now, I kind of feel like in the course of this book, I have all this extra stuff that that I was just so fascinated with, you know, that so I kind of think don't ever don't throw things away. <laughs> you know, you never know when you might get into use. Oh, I have a whole pocket of 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 files that I you know of people I looked into at at the research library at the Schomburg or the performing arts library about you know women in the twenties in in the theater that was like what you know that again they're people that most people you would never heard of them but they were just how did they live these lives you know so so sometimes I feel like you know let things simmer you know it it takes a long time but but. But it's it's better to start with sometimes it's better to start with an article and just see where you get mm. you know, see where it takes you. So I hope that's wise. Mm. Oh, thank <laughs> No, it is wise. It is absolutely wise. <laughs> and I have to say, because, you know, I, I do some, inter I, I've, I've never written a book. And I, I love the idea. And, and the more I speak to authors, I love the idea of kind of spending all this time with you know, an artist or, you know, kind of a subject, if you like, and just exploring, as I say, and reading your book as an example, you just, it's just so energizing and 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 it's so wonderful. Um, But for me, I'm like, I would have to commit so much of my time. Uh, so it, it feels like a huge task. So it's not anything I've uh, ever considered doing because of that. So I'm always, 
I think it's such a wonderful thing to kind of commit. And it isn't just writing a book. You know, you're committing so much of your life, your soul, um, your heart, um, your brain. I mean, all those different elements, you're you know, truly committing to kind of the project. So um, it's a wonderful thing. Um, thank you so, so much for being a guest oh, on our podcast. Um, that you will no, find it's anybody- been a pleasure. It's so lovely to talk to you and we will get your other books on uh, on our bookcase. And for our listeners, as you know, on our website, we have our on the bookcase page. So there's links there. So you will find Stephanie's book that you can click on there. And as I say, I shall be adding the other books. Um, and as I say, perhaps once I've read them, we can get you back on as a guest and we can talk about your <laughs> I, other books. That I, would I, be wonderful. I, I... I'd, I'd be delighted you know the uh, just one quick thing it doesn't have to go in but just like it's so easy also to get like derail you know it's like oh I found all this stuff about the Apollo theater that no one knows or I found out you know it's like well you know you can't squish everything in so sometimes you also just give yourself the space it's like okay <laughs> yes anyway it's been a great pleasure and a great i'm thrilled for you and i'm thrilled for the podcast and the website and all of that so it's like yeah it's great (laughs) thank Thank you you. so much thank you so much for joining us uh and um i will speak to you hopefully very soon okay have a good day fiona thank you and you (laughs) bye-bye bye